clear. We are the weirdos. I am God. What? I tried to warn her. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to Ots Tyrion. I'm your co-host, Sam Weinman. And I am your co-host, Jordan Cruciola. And we are here to reclaim Millennium Era Horror. That's right. That is, you know, I don't feel like I say it explicitly often enough, but like the reason for this name, the podcast name is Ots Tyrion. And that is because we are making our own version of the Criterion Collection by taking these these maligned or underappreciated or misunderstood movies from our formative, um, you know, teen and early 20-something years and putting our stamp on them and saying, you know what? These are actually worth it. They're worth your time. And there's a lot more going on in them textually and, as I think we have made clear at this point, subtextually to where, you know, they're, 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 they're each a cave of wonders that a person can go into and discover so much, let's hope about themselves, but about the movie's... Uh, the, the movies themselves and, and also the surrounding culture that, that c- contributed to their creation, that indeed birthed them. And what we have today is a film that I, I don't think you're going to hear really many other places, Mm-mm. but it is a film that uh, is very special to Jordan. Do you want to introduce? Yeah, I, this one is really, this one's really um, a Jordan special uh, we're here today, ladies and gentlemen, to talk about The Quiet from director Jamie Babbitt. And you're like, God, I think I know that name. And I'm going to tell you why. And it's because Jamie Babbitt directed, but I'm a cheerleader. And the way that I like to introduce this movie to people is by telling them that and then saying, but this movie, if you liked, but I'm a cheerleader, this movie is absolutely nothing like, but I'm a cheerleader. Um, nope. Except for there's a girl in a house she wants to get out of and needs to get out of. Um, but beyond that, don't let that influence your thinking for the story you're about to see. I watched this movie because it came up um, on, like, the Amazon algorithm recommended it to me. And I think the cover image for it is Alicia Cuthbert. Uh, it stars Alicia Cuthbert and Camille Bell. The image is Alicia Cuthbert leaning into the ear of Camille Bell and whispering something to her. So obviously I was going to click on that because I wanted to find out what that secret was. Well, what was she whispering? We had to know. She was whispering a very sad mystery into the ear. And you know, here at (laughs) Ots Tyrion, we fucking love a sad mystery. And this movie, the reason this movie, I think, the reason especially I want to bring this movie into the Ots Tyrion conversation, like, we've done a, we've, we've so far done a lot of big. We've so far done a lot of over the top. We've so far done a lot of, like, You've heard us talk about remakes. You've heard us talk about things that are sensational. You've heard us talk about things that are really tapping into the zeitgeist and doing something like the the MTV horror, you know, horror factory. Um, That sort of sexiness, that kind of gloss. This movie is like with Jamie Babbitt being an an independent film director and and coming into this uh, with, you know, bigger, you know, Edie Falco is in this. Uh, Alicia Cuthbert is in this, who was like trending more popular at the time. Camille Bell was like on the rise around this era this is marrying the mentality of making a suspense film in the 2000s with the indie roots of a filmmaker like Jamie Babbitt telling a serious story. And along the way makes choices that are so baffling. Oh, I was going to say bold. Bold. And, and, and I don't mean baffling, baffling in a bad sense. But like no, baffling. No, but that, I love that. <laughs> creating the sense of bafflement in me. And I would like to think others in the sort of shock and twists and turns that come your way 
as the story is unfolding in front of you. Okay, and I love that Amazon review. I'm going to tell you my my entry point. Yeah. So it is online, you recommending yeah. this movie, and me playing it for people blind. Mm-hmm. Absolutely allowing Jordan to program this, not ever, not ever even watching a trailer. Sight unseen. Sight unseen movie night selection. And it... So I'm going to do... Now, I've seen it a couple times by now. I'm going to do my best to tell you what it's about. Please do. Um, in my recap. So the girl from When a Stranger Calls mm-hmm. uh, parades around somebody's house with a bad haircut. <laughs> while the girl from uh, from House of Wax, which I did not even realize it was her. You did Wait, it? is it her? Yes. That is her, right? Yeah. Yes. That's like baby her. OMG, it is. Gives, yes, of course. While, while she gives the mean girls bullying performance of a lifetime. Of and a speaking lifetime. of lifetime, my best <laughs> interpretation of this movie would be if you made a high quality lifetime film, like a theatrically Absolutely. released lifetime film. Absolutely. No, that is 100% what this is. And it is in 2005. So we're really, we're not at Ott's exhaustion yet. Like, the, the formats that we're going to get see played out over the course of the decade, they're really in their kind of swinging form right now. And this movie is doing, is adding such a texture to the landscape of typically sad mysteries that we see. And it's like, you, Michael Myers stripper mom, the every super killer has an origin story. This is the most earnest sad mystery that I can think of that I would want to address on this podcast. This movie w- premiered at TIFF, right? Was it TIFF? Wait. Oh. No, well, this this movie was a film festival movie in 2005. Yes. yes. But in 2006 is when it had its theatrical release. Now, this is this really interests me as a fan of the odds because the difference culturally between 2005 and 2006 was enormous. Bush started his second term. Like, like we're looking at 2005, like YouTube just started. And, mm-hmm. and like, uh, you know, right off the heels of gay people getting married in San Francisco. And mm-hmm. so Bush like runs on an anti-gay platform yep. and he starts his, his, his term in 2005. But by 2006, he's a fucking joke. I mean, he's always yeah. been a joke, but like culturally, no matter what side you're on, we're like, oh shit. And yeah. so things are changing. Like there is a feeling of sh- like a shifting cultural attitude that's happening in 2006. And I think what we have in The Quiet is something similar to an I Know Who Killed Me, where the material at hand is so severe and being treated with such earnestness that it is difficult in the moment to really value the enter- the level of entertainment you can get from a movie like this because you are so engrossed by the sad mystery being told by being given to you by an independent filmmaker where I think we can forget to have fun with movies like these and then you see them happen at something like a Sam's movie night and you realize there is a lot of communal joy to be found in watching a movie like this together and I think you know we we while talking about it as serious art, it's also important to remember that this is a movie about a girl who's pretending to be deaf, and and another girl who figures it out because she's playing the piano. Because she's girl, you think after fifteen years of this shit, she behind it better. It an important thing to know is that this movie starts out with Camille Bell walking through a high school hallway narrating the sort of state of the union of her emotional reality. 
talking about how she about how deeply she wishes to be invisible and explains that to us with an extended feeling monologue involving rash involving ratios when i was in a room with another person i felt like i was only half there when i was in a room with two other people i felt like a third of myself like she keeps walking us through and as this is happening we are being served the visual metaphor as well as we start with the full frame being her eyes and it reduces down to a three-quarter screen, then a half screen, then a quarter screen as Camille talks. And that should tell us everything we need to know about how thick <laughs> this movie is going to lay on its sentiment the entire time. Mm-hmm. It, it shows you its hand immediately. Like, this movie mm. feels, as you're watching it, like they couldn't possibly. Like, as, as each new element kind of gets introduced you're like there this couldn't possibly be happening but the yep. thing is this movie starts with a metaphor about ratios and a desire to be anonymous by a young girl named dot with as you said a, a truly egregious haircut on a pretty girl like camille bell who is living her life as an uh, as a as a person presumed to not have the ability to speak and so she is um She's maligned by some and patronized to by others for um, her disability. Um, But as we go on, again, the cards are shown in this movie very early on. Big reveals happen very early on. And then you're left to marinate with them, wondering how they could possibly resolve. We we learn. I remember watching this during movie night. People are like, wait, she doesn't talk. And I was like, well, that's a complicated question. And then we see Dot in a quiet moment at her because she has gone to live with her godparents because her father has tragically died. He it was a sincerely um, speech impaired man. He, he couldn't speak. So he communicated with Dot through sign language. And what we learn is that oh the God. reason Dot assumed this identity is because she felt so deeply connected to her father and loved him so, I'm going to say obsessively, she forsook speech to be his silent companion and wanted no one else around in her life but her father. The daddy issues in this movie. Your father must have known that you could hear Oh my God, Jordan! I did not even catch any of that. Are you shitting me? No, that's what the movie's about. That is what this is. What we are. This is the main character. Oh my God! This is this is gonna be this episode is gonna be you explaining to me what's really going on. (laughs) I cannot. I my mind is blown. Her dad. Okay, sorry. Keep going. No, her dad. Yeah, her dad actually communicated through sign language. That she makes so much hear. more sense. He couldn't hear. He I just dead. thought because I, I was like, how the fuck did she? Nope. Think? Nope. Okay. Sam. Okay. Dot explains. Dot explains. Listen. Okay. So if you if you're at home and you have ADD like I do, um, these monologues are going to be a little challenging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because at some point you're going to start thinking about other things because they're very long and they, and you don't get to see their lips move. Dot but thank explains you, Jordan. that. She opted into presumed deafness because she wanted to feel closer to her father, and it was something they could share. Why did you pretend to be deaf in the first place? 
I just want to be closer to him. And Beautiful. there is a scene, mind you, listener, there is a scene in this movie where Dot sits in the darkness in her new home with her godparents, holding the box of ashes of her father's, looking at them mournfully before putting her hands inside and taking the ash to her mouth and licking it off her fingers as she so- weeps. Let's talk about what kind of movie this is. Because I remember watching that going, is she going to eat that? (laughs) And I said it in our chat. Because it was like, the way Mm -hmm. she's looking at that is like, her dad's a snack. (laughs) I could not believe that she shoveled it into her mouth. I mean, this is a movie where multiple times you're asking, is this going to happen? Is this going to happen? every fucking time, it does. That is exactly exactly the identity of The Quiet. There are so many moments to say, well, she's not going to do that. And then exactly the thing you thought was too over the top to take place in a movie that rarely rises above a middle emotional register, the craziest shit unfolds before you and the daring, the indeed, the, the blade that Jamie Babbitt had to walk on to execute that continuity of insanity for an entire movie, to me, is a feat of filmmaking. I can't even, I don't even know how you could exercise so much restraint while basically setting off hand grenades for an entire movie. And in a a decade that was so brash and so big and so obviously in your face, this is so sneakily one of the most subversive and crazy movies to come out in that linear block of 0 to 10 and does not get nearly enough credit for being a standard bearer of the wildness of how crazy and obscene things could get in the 2000s. So we need to talk about Nina. And we this is the perfect transition. I think that when we look at Lifetime Nina is movies... Al- Nina is Alicia, Alicia Cuthbert, correct? Yes. Yes, Nina. That's is, Alicia Cuthbert. Yeah, the the family the family that uh, Dot has moved in with is her godparents and their daughter. Alicia Cuthbert is Nina Deer. Camille Bell is Dot. Martin Donovan is the dad. Paul Deer and Twist Edie Falco is the godmother. Flawless casting. The, flawless. I mean, flawless. It, it really is. It, it, it's incredible. But yes, so tell me with, about Nina. With Lifetime movies. What you get is a lot of almost, right? Like there's a lot of, there's <laughs> yeah. always, there's always something implied. The abuse yes. is implied or the, uh, the weird like sexual tension is implied. <laughs> and so I think if you go into this movie expecting that, like it's, it's not, it's not wrong of you to think, to be like, oh, I feel this way. You've been programmed to believe it's not going to happen. Yes. So in the introduction to, of Nina, you meet her, she's a cheerleader, um, and and in her first scene at home, she her dad comments to her that she looks good today. Yeah. Right? And it's the way he says it. Yes. You look nice today. I just said that you look nice today. You say to yourself out loud in your movie night group chat, yep. you're like, is she gonna fuck her dad? <laughs> you do. You do say that. Because this feels this feels sexy. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And guess what? 
Guess what? She already did. She already did. She has. She and has. this movie, this movie's not waiting until the end to tell you. They're waiting until mm-hmm. like, what, 22 minutes in? It, and it's yeah. like, P.S., yep. she's fucking her dad. You think this is going to be Dot's um, very like Sundance in 1998 coming of age sad story? But you find out that Dot is simply the vehicle for the story of Nina. And here's the thing about Dot's alleged impairment. She, she supposedly, people don't have to use sign language with her because she's so good at reading lips that people just talk to her. Like, that, they get away from having to, like, incorporate sign into this so, so people can just speak to, to Dot and she can determine what they're saying. But they still think she can't hear. So that means in the night when Dad goes to visit Nina's room, he doesn't feel the need to obscure any of his behavior any more than he normally would because he thinks the new girl living with them can't hear anything. And because this is a very sad movie of the 2000s, Godmother Edie Falco, also a crippling pill addiction and an alcoholic, and also because this is the 2000s, even more than perhaps any other movie we could talk about in this besides I Know Who Killed Me, positively everything is blue in this home. The Everything. mood is blue. The color is blue. The blue clothes her house on with Nina the blue are little blue. Window. It is a blue little house. The blue little window. Nina is in a blue cheerleading uniform. So we find out very early on into um, Dot entering this home that Dad is fucking his teenage daughter. And suddenly, your gears shift. You Tokyo drift your ass into a hairpin turn and are facing an entirely different direction one quarter of the way into this movie's runtime. And suddenly your feelings change, right? Because when I watch a Lifetime movie and it feels like somebody's like, when there's like some incest weird subplot that they're never actually going to say, but it's happening. Yes. You always, it's always titillating and kind of exciting. Yeah. Um, When that subtext becomes text, it becomes immediately sad and the power dynamics become very clear. And suddenly this is, this is not a fun reveal, right? No, no. There's nothing joyous about it except for its delivery. <laughs> Imagine you're having lunch in the cafeteria. Oh, like at this point, let's set the stage a little bit, mind you, for when, ladies and gentlemen, when this movie absolutely becomes the contained explosion that it is, Don Dot has picked up on the fact that this is happening, that dad is having sex with his daughter. Dad at one point even comes into Dot's room and delivers a terrifying confession to her in a way. Like, not complete, but he, like, expresses there's kind of something wrong with him as he thinks she can't hear him. I'm sick, Dot. I'm sick. And he keeps stroking her hair and she's lying there pretending to be asleep. She knows the game's afoot. She hears what's going on in Nina's room. So she's come to suspect. And then when Alicia Cuthbert figures out that Dot is a liar and does indeed have the ability to speak and hear because she's playing the piano in the foyer of the house one day. And And then she swears out loud. Alicia comes in (laughs) while Dot is playing and presumably Dot can't hear her over the piano. And a piano, she like goes off key and she like misses a note and goes, shit, in the most dispassionate voice possible. Alicia knows in that moment, I've got your number, bitch. The game is up. But she's like, you know how I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to test this theory. I'm going to make a confession of my own. And that brings us 
to the lunchtime scene. I'm going to say my favorite thing about Nina, uh, about her character, actually Mm -hmm. happens in that moment where the swear happens. Nina walks away like she's going back to her room. And then she goes, you know what? And she turns her ass back around and she's like, I know what's going on. Like, this is not out loud, but it's all happening. It's like... She is going to, like, the next time she sees her, she's going to let her know. Yeah. (laughs) Like, there's no, she's not here to solve Dot's mystery. She's (laughs) already solved it. All she needed was that one clue. She doesn't want to ask Dot, why are you doing this? She just wants to nail Dot to a fucking wall while also, in accordance with the deeply sad core of this movie, exercise the incredible trauma in her from having been a chronic abuse victim at the hands of her father, which leads her to do one of the craziest things I have ever seen in a movie. This confession. (laughs) The delivery of this confession is... In a crowded cafeteria. Surrounded by people. Surrounded. Drops... The most graphic, detailed description uh-huh. of the abuse she's been ado- enduring mm-hmm. in the in a in a playfully mean and sexy voice. Yes, yes. Which is, I mean, it truly is like it. it rarely do you see something like this in cinema. This is the monologue of a fucking lifetime. It is of a lifetime. I would like to think that Alicia Cuthbert could look back on this moment and be like, God, you know what? I don't know that I've ever been given a scene to do more with than I was that monologue. I'm gonna kill my dad, God. Tonight. I hate him, you know? I hate him, but I love him. I hate it when he won't let me go out with my friends. But I love it when he fucks me. I hate it when he fucks me too, though. You see how that works? It doesn't make any sense. I can't imagine if somebody came into an audition having memorized that monologue (laughs) and just delivered that to me instead of whatever it was. I feel like I would cast them on the spot. (laughs) You're right. That is the make it or break it. That is the floor it Haley moment of auditions. Where you know... That the person on the other end of who you're giving that monologue to, that casting director, that producer, that's either going to be the thing that gets you the job or loses you the job, but it's not going to be anything in between. And it is- If you stick that landing, it you fucking, it's tens. And you know what? Alicia fucking sticks that landing. And I, I think it's important to this as we build up to it to know that Alicia was not only a, a co-star of this movie and probably of the moment, the, the biggest name in the zeitgeist, she's a co-producer. Are you serious? Alicia Cuthbert is a co-producer. What the fuck? On the quiet. So this is this is a woman. With Isn't like she good... like sixteen in this movie? She's a seventeen-year-old. Yeah. Okay. Well, like oh, like at the time of filming, I'll look up what her age was. But I'm just saying there is a level of producer. I'm just so impressed. Authority. She charged into this thing, knowing exactly what was on the other fucking side of it. That impresses me so much that she took on this material all the way through with the like tenacity in which she does yep because here's here's the thing at this time alicia cuthbert is this is 
she's she's been in other things. She's she's had you know movies that my sassy girl. He was a quiet man. These are probably not movies that you would have heard a ton about. But the quiet comes out in the same year that House of Wax hits the festivals in the same year that House of Wax comes out. Girl Next Door had come out the year before The Quiet was made. Before that, she had been in Old School. Before that, she had been in Love Actually. Alicia Cuthbert is a popular star at this time, and so is probably the one that, with this indie film, was able to help secure financing because you put the girl from... you know the girl next door and the house of wax in this movie and you've got your you've got your you know culture tapping star and you've got this woman who seemingly wants to demonstrate that like you know what I can do harder material too I can do edgier material too I am not just the hot blonde in these movies there's more to me and so what you have in this role is such a nail-biting subversion of what you expect from Alicia Cuthbert in a cheerleading uniform that it is I find to be a breathtaking choice of career texture at this age for her to have charged headlong into. To pivot for a moment, because mm-hmm. there's, I, I know we, we will obviously come back to Alicia because this is her film. And yes. quite literally because she's one of the producers. Yeah. Sean <laughs> Ashmore. Yeah, um, surprise everybody. Who, uh, Sean Ashmore, who pops up in so many films that he he's always a surprise and yes. always a delight. <laughs> yes. You know, I loved him in Frozen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I think that he is uh, like one of my first childhood crushes because he was in that show Animorphs. Yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, he got his twin brother was yeah. supposed to go to the audition and then his twin brother got sick and then Sean showed up and then landed the role. Oof. Can you imagine? Kismet. I would be so pissed. <laughs> yeah. I would kill my twin. And they yeah. we would have to know. You would know who killed me. Yeah, I would know who killed you. So so Sean being, um, you know, the, the dreamy, but like looking back, I'm looking at this going like, how was I so attracted to him? But yeah. I guess he's just like an odds aesthetic. He was. Um, he really was. That, has, that we've... we've I'd say safe to say we've moved on from. We loved a thin um, lip. We loved a thin lip. We loved thin a thin lip. lip. Mm-hmm. We loved a thin lip, a little bit of curl. Mm-hmm. I think that he, um, as Connor, we come in expecting this guy to be, because he's sweet. And we see yeah. him perform sweetness very well in a few different moments where and it's he like. he is immediately, it's important to know he is immediately drawn to Dot. And her awful haircut. He yeah. looks right past it and sees the deaf girl she really is, but <laughs> isn't. Yes. So... What is uh, interesting to me about Connor mm-hmm. is everything he says when he thinks Dot isn't reading uh, that that Dot isn't reading mm-hmm. his lips. Yeah. So, uh, and I know that's the an actual. This is not a between the lines thing. This is actual text in the film. Absolutely. What, what this this very sweet man um, who is seems very protective and mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. Every time she's not looking at his mouth, he says something fucking disgusting. <laughs> I mean, just. Fucking- cannot Disgusting. help himself like he is like he is a comment on on a blog like he is yes. he is on film twitter straight up just spewing whatever the fuck he wants he is a he is an in real time reply guy I, I got really really hard last night I had to beat off and my mom was just outside of my room putting the towels away you know I could hear her but couldn't help myself. This movie, this movie's relationship with sex is so fascinating because as an asexual identifying person 
who has not had sex myself, I don't know that you could have a better advertisement for convincing me to continue not having sex than the quiet. And there is a moment where, where he is feeling so deeply connected to Dot for the explicit reason that she cannot be a conversational participant with him. That he explains to her, he explains that he desires her because she can't be so annoying and just like talk to him all the time. Because she's such a great listener because she has nothing to say. I think about you sometimes. I think about how you look naked. How quiet you are. Like a doll. And what is so 2000s about this movie is that he is still actually made a, a heroic figure. And we are meant to align with him, empathize with him at the moment he realizes Dot can talk. Because he's like, you're a fucking liar. I can't believe what a deceiver you are. And Dot's reaction is to like plead after him and be like, I'm sorry. Um... You're thinking, oh, she's going to come into her own at some point and be like, I don't fucking need you, Sean Ashmore. But instead, at the moment of their reckoning, she's rueful and apologetic. And there is just something so fucked up about what we considered a good boyfriend in the 2000s. It's something Uh we see in The Roommate with Cam Gigande's character, who quite truly maps out rape culture to Minka Kelly's character, and it's played as flirtation. And even in a movie so muted and sincere as this, we still see that very 2000s millennial boy archetype come through that is supposed to be sort of petite and sad and sensitive, but is actually just malignant and, and quite terrifying. He seems, by the end of all of his confessions, seems like a time bomb of a person who would go off at any moment and, and hurt Dot. When he and Dot are sitting by the poolside and he's saying some of the the most disgusting things and <laughs> yeah. she's pretending not to hear him yeah. i'm thinking this is going to be the moment dot cuts and runs and instead she turns and looks at him and takes her top off yep that is when i was like this is one of my favorite films so <laughs> yes. <laughs> because yes. that what a move first off and also yep. who hasn't been there um <laughs> and <laughs> i mean maybe not maybe i wasn't pretending i was deaf but come on it's a relatable right. situation right right you do it anyways uh-huh. but i would say that there's something about the like that was when it all came together for me that that Dot and Nina are are both ends of the way that men write women spectrum. And mm-hmm. so Dot is um it, he's able to sexualize and and, and romanticize and sexualize yes. Dot as long as she is only a vessel for his feelings and thoughts. She is yes. the manic pixie dream girl of his movie. Completely. Um where on the on the other side of it we have mean girl blonde white hottie Nina who is who is just going to mercilessly bully her. Well, and also we have like, we have even like in in, in the spirit of this movie, always doing more than you think is possible. The best friend character. I knew you were going to talk about Michelle. And like, we will get more into Michelle after the point we have to, but you, I will let you continue finishing this point about the, the, the bipolarity of how women could be written at this period of time. They right. Michelle is, is definitely a third option. They, Rail Michelle, who Michelle. It, who's looking at her nipple, her boobs fully out when the dad walks in knowingly. Yeah. And she puts her tit away. And you're <laughs> yeah. like, yep, this is the quiet. This is par for the course. Do you think my nipples are abnormally big? Michelle, put your tit away. You're like, no, her dad's not going to ro- walk in right now. No. Of course yeah. 
and as as Michelle is beckoning Nina to take some sexual interest in her so they can experiment in her very she little girl bedroom. just wants to make this friendship sexual so bad like every movie that has two women in a room for too long because you know if if a man's writing two women as friends in a room for too long mm-hmm. they will become queer yeah, they will become um, it. Well, first of all, one of them is going to get naked in front of the other one. That's <laughs> yeah. going to happen. Yeah. Because that's just what women do all the time. Yeah. But second, it's going to it's going to become sexual. Yeah. And so, um, and this writing, to me, so explicitly points to the way that women are written at this time. Yeah. Conti- continue um, on with that point. Yeah. With Where I wanted to take that was just that Nina becomes so sympathetic your heart my heart broke for her oh yeah despite the fact that she was relentlessly cruel to dot who Uh you know makes questionable choices and has a haircut that i I could never forgive but is still (laughs) a person yeah you know and and the two of them it's it's when she realizes that dot is not the manifestation of the manic pixie pixie dream girl yes that she actually bonds with her and reveals who she really is yeah and And the two of them together as which is at first wielded in a way as a weapon. Like the initial reveal of the yes. harrowing lunchtime monologue of the disclosure of, of sexual abuse by her father, the disclosure of that rape, is used to like rip Dot apart. It's used yes. to hurt her and make her feel bad and be a cathartic experience for Nina that she is so conflicted by. Because as she outlined, she has a very... um layered relationship with her relationship with her father which you know there's the complication of love and hatred and and that messy nightmare of abuse and so she goes from using her own pain as something to try and hurt and unmask dot to then suddenly by virtue of that proclamation making dot her only ally in the entire world and this is what's wild about that subversion to me in that 22 minutes in speech, I don't know exactly when it is, but I feel like that's it. <laughs> it's like, it's um, 30 minutes in, I think. I think it's 30 it's, minutes in. It's, it happens so quickly. We find in out that, even earlier that the abuse is occurring, but we are given that speech one third of the way into this movie. Yes. Right. I think 22 minutes in is when it when we're like, oh, this is happening. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So, but, but what's so careful about the writing of this moment mm-hmm. is that she confesses in that whisper reveal that mm-hmm. she's also going to kill her dad. Now, yes. while while detailing not just the description of what it what is happening, but her her push and pull relationship to it, and, and how, how she, she feels. makes her father orgasm and what he prefers. So when she says she's going to kill him, mm-hmm. it's like the movie is saying, "Hey, normally in an erotic thriller with a little bit of uh, an incest reveal, we might hang this over your head and make it titillating and yes. put it in the third act. Yes, and maybe it will." Like in the climax, you'll see this this yeah. kill. They're like, we're not even going to give you that satisfaction. Actually, here's the sadness. We're going to put it right on a plate. Yep. Uh, eat up. And the murder is not dangled as a possibility. It yeah. actually becomes the the ruling plot of the film. Yeah. And it be, and almost a threat to Dot. Like, yes. you are the keeper of this secret now. What are you going to do about it? Like... And this is, I think the invocation of the erotic thriller is so crucial here because I think it is so indicative of how millennial era horror, of how aughts this is. Because after the the 90s were really the heyday of the erotic thriller. And it's something we have really unfortunately let slip away with like the death of the mid-budget movie in the Hollywood ecosystem. We really don't get proper 
erotic thrillers anymore. And to be done well, erotic thrillers have to be kind of trashy. Even when they're yep. done well, even like Fatal Attraction is a trashy movie. It's a pulp, it's a dime store novel kind of movie just executed yep. at the highest kind of level. But what we did in the 2000s lacked nuance in, in so many ways that with the death of the erotic thriller, this movie is entirely the aughts version of an erotic thriller because all we're doing at that point is taking, is flooring it and hitting the gas and taking these things to their most extreme possible conclusions. So there isn't a play, there can't be a playfulness about it because we just go straight to sad. There can't be that thing that makes you have that sort of voyeuristic titillation of the bad psychosexual plot at the start of, at the heart of it, because everything is just presented very matter of factly as either joyful or egregious there's really it's a, it's a very one it's a it's a time of two poles and we really don't sit in the middle at any point so speaking and I think of as polls. such it almost becomes <laughs> this like incredible indictment of the playful voyeurism of the erotic thriller and showing you that there is a cost to this kind of titillation like it is it is a subversion of the sexy trashy movie in that it shows you the cost of sexualizing such sensation, of taking something that is meant for spectacle, that actually, when you examine the intricacies of the crimes at hand and, at hand and the trespasses, becomes something really insidious and terrifying. And as a result, it almost, it almost becomes like this backdoor deconstruction of the erotic thriller that, like, I, you know, until you know, talking about it with some distance from it in the 2000s was just not something that we saw with its head on such a swivel being willing to indict the system that existed around it at such like, to such an effective degree. Absolutely. Well, I was going to say, speaking of polls, uh, <laughs> I, I loved uh, the moment when Nina reveals that uh, it, when she like runs away, she could just work as a stripper. Um, because yeah. one, she totally could, but two, this harkens back to something we were talking about in the I Know Who Killed Me episode, which mm -hmm. is like this idea that like to be a stripper is like the worst kind of woman in the odds. Yeah. It's like, and now that, that same moment would play out. She'd be like, yeah, I'll be fine. I'll just make an OnlyFans. And we'd be like, yeah, she will be fine. <laughs> we, things have changed. So it's time we talk about Michelle. Because I cannot wait any longer. It is Here's time. the thing about Michelle. Yeah, it is time. She fucking lives in the driveway. <laughs> because every time they talk about that girl, she's at the front door. Every she's time. not texting. She's not calling. She is already there. Michelle lives in the yard. <laughs> There's no it, other option. I think it was, I think it was, I, I, I think I was the one who said that on the movie night. Where yeah. it's like the chat was happening, and it said somebody was talking about Michelle. Said something about Michelle. I was like, well, I mean, she's in the driveway, and then she showed she's in up the at driveway, the driveway, bitch, and she was there. Michelle is the worst friend you could possibly have. Katie Mixon is delivering what I think is a Hall of Fame level performance. This is an all time level commitment to being mm -hmm. a mean girl. You see. Alicia Cuthbert is sinking her teeth into Nina. And she is so troubled and in so much pain. She is a tremendous bully in this film. The way she is mean to Dot, who, to be fair, does deserve a bit of constructive feedback for constantly just staring at people in a really rude and presumptuous way. Like, they're allowed to consider that strange and uncomfortable. And yet she continues to do it. Can't empathize with Dot on that one. But Nina is so mean 
to Dot. Hello, Dot. Did you have a good day at school? She spent most of the day in the bathroom. She's a total freak. Can't you just be like her ungodparents? And yet, her cruelty pales in comparison to that of her best friend, who is a monolith of cruelty. And Katie Mixon is so good at playing a devastatingly bitter and gleefully bitchy person. Maybe you can snag some pills from your mom. Her mom's a major prescriptaholic. <laughs> Michelle. What? Shut up. She is. I, I ascend when I get, when every line that comes out of Katie Mixon's mouth in this movie is acerbic and every facial expression is a snarl. And it is breathtaking. The w one note and yet somehow layered hatred that this girl had, the disdain that this girl has, the contempt for everyone around her at all times. It's remarkable. In any other movie, this woman would be written as Karen Smith from Mean Girls. But <laughs> in The Quiet, she is written on, so so she thinks she's so funny. Yes. <laughs> Every line she delivers, she is aware. Like this is what, like when you're talking about a great performance, yeah. like she she is delivering it, like she, she is eating herself up. <laughs> and it is, yep. and that is the level of camp I love. That yes. is the death becomes her. Yep. of this film. That is exactly I what want, it is. I want, like, she is standing at the front door during a family dinner, and she looks at Nina, and she's like, How do I look? Hot. Does he want to fuck me? Yes. Say it. Say what? Say, he wants to fuck me. He wants to fuck you. Connor Kennedy wants to fuck me. And then... She makes her say it, and then she has her say it louder. The family's eating. Connor's four feet away. How does he not hear the volume of this? It is almost a pathological response that Michelle has to seeing Sean Ashmore's Connor. It is her defining character trait that Michelle wants to specifically fuck Connor. And this is what goes back to the satirization of the way that women are written, particularly at the time of this film, is that she's standing at this door and saying say it like tell me that he wants to fuck me and she's saying it out loud and all you can think and feel is there is no way a teenage girl is saying this this yeah. is a line coming directly from a man and that <laughs> yes. is what makes it so brilliant to me yeah no i think so too because knowing it's jamie babbitt behind her behind exactly it, and knowing that she made but i'm a cheerleader the amount you... of like patriarchy that seeps yes. into all the darkness and evil of this movie and makes you feel like you need to shower feels like in that way that neon demon i, I think I really unintentionally was does just gonna say that because <laughs> i was like this is no nicholas whatever reffing guy nicholas like Wine this Reffin. is yes this is no him like this is not I did something so egregious that it accidentally became feminist. Yes, exactly. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. This is on purpose. Every move is calculated. Well, because it's like women written from the perspective of somebody who took all the wrong lessons from Lolita. <laughs> and in this case, that is done intentionally to subvert the trope of the the sexualized teen girl and kind of throws it back in your face and turns the volume up so loud and says, are you not entertained by this? And I want to fuck him. Fuck him! <laughs> He's obviously afraid of commitment. So who do you want to bang Chung these days, Nina? 
and if you look at the if you look at the extreme nature of each of these female characters in this movie, you have the utterly non-presence of Dot. Complete utter non I mean, it could be the most method performance of all time that Camille Bell is giving. I don't know. But there is not I don't know how you could read her. I mean, that's what I'm saying. I mean, but like, th- that's what I'm talking about. No, this, absolutely. This could be genius. This could be genius. Because I No, but think... also you should read her. I mean, when a stranger I... calls, come on, girl. <laughs> I, I don't think, I can't think of a way I could know to perform an absence of presence that Camille Bell brings to this movie, which has the incredible effect of making her the perfect contrast to the very sexualized seeming Nina, the the pretty blonde girl that we often see in her underwear, who's always in a cheerleading outfit, and the incredibly sexually forceful Michelle by Katie Mixon. And then you have Dot, who in her silence, who in her in the void of this character, becomes the perfect girl to the cute boy in school, to the hot jock, for the exact reason that she is a that she takes up no space whatsoever, and that's what makes her the dream girl. You know, I was thinking about you last night. I was thinking that if we went on a road trip, how quiet it would be. And what I want to say about the family dynamic and how it plays into the ending is that this movie, thinking about it in terms of when it emerged, being 2005, Mm -hmm. the cultural landscape was the release of Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which was like... Uh, the, but the story around Mr. and Mrs. Smith was bigger than the movie, even yeah. though the movie made like hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. Like Mr. and Mrs. Smith was like the movie that broke up Jen and Brad. Yep. And and our obsession with, as we've talked about before, paparazzi culture in the mid-2000s and the mm-hmm. way that it came to a very ugly head around 07. 05, it was really ramping up and it still felt fun. Yes. To be able to talk about these infidelities and these dark secrets. And it was like, oh, we're, these were headlines. And it was just, and it was all public for us. And we're in, are you team, you know, Angelina? Yeah. And that was the, I think this movie makes a point of saying like, you'll never truly know everything that's going on behind closed doors because yeah. of the way that it wraps up. But also that underneath it, there's nothing fun about somebody's secret. Yeah. I think that's a very, very good point. And at a time when tabloid culture is is on a speeding train toward its zenith, which I think you have very well made the case for that being in 2007, there is at this time still that desperate hunger for the secret. And the fact yep. that it is a limited resource and it is only fed to us on little drips from like certain well-placed and anonymous sources. There is the idea of a circus around it that's fun for the observers when the reality is is that like the performers in the middle are being mistreated behind the tent in the back when you can't see them. Exactly. Which is why, well, if you're ready, I would love to unpack this ending. You know when you're watching um, a high school play and <laughs> they're about to approach some like very adult material yeah. and you're like, am I watching this right now? <laughs> Like, that's the odd feeling that I had seeing the ending unfold. Not because they were high school play-level performances. No. I mean, they were doing great. Yeah. But there's something about all of it that feels simultaneously very real. Uh-huh. And also, like, it is literally on a stage right in front of me. Yes. Yes. It has and the bigness of a theater production. Yes. And so when um, what ends up happening is 
Nina is is tells her dad that she's pregnant yeah. and that she needs money for an abortion to avoid and then, him having sex with her again. Yes, and so then she decides. By the way, that scene where she where she his eyes are shut mm-hmm. and she holds an iron so this like to his face like she's yeah. going to do it, mm-hmm. but she doesn't. Mm-hmm. She still has that push pull with her dad, and mm-hmm. it's it's heartbreaking. And the movie but, does a really, I will say, just like in a, in addition to that, the movie does a very interesting thing of the way that they present Alicia Cuthbert, the way they present Nina in her bra and underwear. She's so often tending to her uniform, her cheerleading uniform. She has to iron it. She has to press it. She has to control it. She has to maintain it. That's very important to her. And we watch her tending to this like incredibly specific emblem of girlhood while she is wearing a bra and underwear in you know Alicia Cuthbert I think was in her mid-20s when she made this movie very much a woman's body and it's forcing you into the uncomfortable position of noticing this girl and seeing her reduced to her parts while she is tending to this thing that is entirely representative of her childhood and her youth while she's being confronted with and confronting her abuser you know there are there are people inside these archetypes there are there are girls in a movie like this it's not young women it's girls and so we see in the quiet really like you like you mentioned the the demonstration the example that it gives of the way that women are written in cinema the way that girls are written in cinema and hypersexualized to be young women when they are in fact teenagers and it shows you that there's it, it loops you in it ropes you in like you know it sets a little sort of trail of breadcrumbs with the the sensation of the movie and the sort of the the bigness of of that the severity of that whiplashing back and forth and it kind of punishes you for buying into it and wanting to be titillated by something that is actually so egregious and traumatic sorry but every time i say something that's like I can't believe that iron was in his face and uh-huh. you explained something so gracefully. I'm just like, <laughs> yep. I mean, really that. So <laughs> because what's happening here in this moment is she it's going it takes two, baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like she's going to need she's to take that extra step and successfully she's mm-hmm. going to need dot. Yeah. Um, they're going to need each other in a way that I feel like we see in a lot of films that you and I have talked about, mm-hmm. um, Jordan, that you seem to be drawn to. Yes. Um, when it comes to female friendship. Yeah. Do you want to? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the... the <laughs> You're going to say it way better than me. Yeah. I mean, just like the... the I, I know that a core thing that really appeals to me about this movie amidst like the sensation and salaciousness of it, which is a lot of fun, is I am somewhat powerless before like... A, a girls becoming their their protectors movie a girls becoming their a girls becoming their own saviors movie and I have a deep affinity um and desire to protect all like teen girls in the world from the abuses um that surround them and the, the dangers that surround them at all times and so you watch something like this and it it too numbs you to the insanity at a certain point where you're expecting something to be ratcheted up so constantly that you're like, well, a lesser reveal would like not register with me at this point. But because you've become to feel so strongly about the crazy lives of these characters, the exposing moments of their softness and vulnerability are extremely effective. So like when you see the absolute utter hardened shell of Michelle kind of break a little bit when she's called out by her best friend for being so cruel. You see the humanity in there in a way that you didn't You know think she's was... moving out of the driveway. 
I'm gonna make that fucking whore. Michelle, take it down a notch. The whole world already knows you're a cunt. There's nothing left to prove. Yeah, she's moving out of the driveway. They're breaking up. Um, she couldn't, she could not have received perspective without receiving, um, cruel treatment tantamount to her own. You will follow up like a brutal, uh, bullying from Nina with another scene where they're at the movie theater and she's plugging her ears to understand what it must feel like to be deaf. That, and, and you've seen nothing at this point that would indicate that she's empathetic. And so this movie's giving it to you in a way where it's just a little bit at a time, but it's extremes. And then you have these at once, like at first enemies in Nina and Dot who are powered so much by their own pain that that is what they bond through. And so the idea of them coming to a resolve to protect one another and taking on a very adult responsibility as teenage girls uh, is something that really like will pull at me naturally kind of no matter how large and chaotic you give me something you if you that you give me something that contains like these elements like even if it is as crazy as possible if it has that cell at its core it's gonna strip me down completely and that's the thing that I'm gonna have to be able to focus on to me it's like tragedy girls holding their hands exactly. in front of that door Ex- tragedy the girls is such I got a best look- case example of exactly what we're talking about here yeah it's um it's that movie uh isn't it about horses it was like based on a play and it has that girl from The Witch. <laughs> Thoroughbreds. One of my old Thoroughbreds. Days. Thoroughbreds. Yes. My asexual romance. <laughs> Thoroughbreds. Yeah, the horse movie. Yeah. Um, it's like that. It's got that energy, mm-hmm. right? Like it, to me, this that moment, it felt so empowering. And I was I was immediately um I felt sad because I was like, mm-hmm. there's no way they can get away with it because they're messy fucking teenagers who yep. don't know what the hell they're doing. Yep. And that is where this movie pulls uh, the quiet. Brings it, yeah. Brings us a messy fucking climax. When they get home after having done the deed. Well, and let's let's make clear what the deed is, actually. The deed is things reached a volcanic conclusion between Nina and her dad when he realizes that she is not pregnant and confronts her. And it becomes the... Fuck you. You're an ungrateful little bitch. No, daddy, I'm sorry. No, daddy, I love you. And you're watching this agonizing regression into submission and pleasing behavior because she does love her father and also hates him. And he starts hitting her. He starts and then he he begins to like he he's forcing himself on her. He's going to rape her. Dot hears all of this because Dot can hear. Mom, meanwhile, is passed out somewhere in the house in a drug haze because we've known for a while now at this point that mom is aware of the abuse but is so paralyzed that she is unable to act upon it and her shame compounds her paralysis and she continues to let her daughter be hurt. And so Dot hears what's happening and for a, a long, almost excruciating extended period of time does not do anything. And I scream, I remember screaming at the movie being like, go fucking help her, go help her. But then you remember she's a 17 year old girl and this is really fucking scary and this is really fucking grown up. But as dad is like holding Nina down and trying to assault her, Dot finally comes in and takes that snapped piano wire, which is the thing that outed her to Nina in the first place, starts strangling dad from behind. Shit. Starts strangling dad from behind. And because this is a piano wire, and because this is the quiet, she is not only strangling him, she is slicing into the soft tissue of his throat at the same time. And blood is spattering down 
onto Nina's face as her dad is being murdered. So, P.S., that's where I was going with the it takes two thing. Yes. Yes. <laughs> the whole Mary Kate and Ashley moment. Because it is, it does, it takes dot to do that. Thank you yeah. for connecting those dots that I, dots, that I just uh, <laughs> scattered about. Um, really appreciate it. Not because wrong. I'm just living for this moment when they get home and the police are outside and they're like, oh, fuck, we're caught. And mom is yep. there getting arrested. And mom doesn't let them say a word. She... Nope. Because she has been shitty the whole movie. She yeah. has been not enough. She has failed as a protector. And yep. she has chosen to turn a blind eye to things that she absolutely should not have. And she is insecure. And, in- and she is broken. And she, like, parades herself around naked in front of her husband asking, am I thin enough? Am I pretty enough? Like, she measures herself against the desirability of her daughter and escapes her insecurity and her failings as a parent into chemicals. And she's like, you know what? But right now, I'm Mama Bear. She does the one thing one. that Dakota and I Know Who Killed Me needed the most. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> Which is she, you know, she throws herself on a sword for her daughter. Mm-hmm. She uh, she confesses to the murder that she did not do so that her daughter and Dot can live their lives. Yes. And it is so gratifying. It is, it is so it- gratifying. Oh, Nina, hold on. I'm going to go away for a little while. Okay, I'm not, I'm not well. I did a terrible, terrible thing. I killed your father. And it's a twist that, unlike all of the other twists that have been like, is this going to happen? Uh-huh. And then it does. This is the one thing that you don't, I, for me, that I didn't I, see coming. No, I, I was like, not. how the fuck? They're not going to get out of this. Not only do they get out of this, they get a happy ending. They get a happy ending. And there are there are three tender moments in this movie where... Three very tender moments between Nina and Dot in this movie. Two of them involve in the night, Nina going into Dot's room and snuggling up to her and going to sleep next to her. Because, like, this is the one person who knows. And also, like, there's no other, like, physical affectionate love that exists in her life really beyond um, being raped by her father. So this is her, like, reclaiming that love as well. And there are these two nights, one of which enters... One of which begins with a very strange moment where Nina just fully darkens the doorway of Dot and says, I killed my goldfish when I was little, Dot. I had six of them. And I cut them in half with scissors. And you're just like, what the absolute great fuck just happened here? And then she curls up to her and just starts sleeping on Dot's shoulder. So yeah, I you know that brings us to the end of the movie. And I think... It's just so important to me to have this one on the record of something that we champion that makes choices that are so brash and that are so unexpected that I think for an unprepared audience can seem like they might have been missed punches. When indeed, I think every single one of the swings that The Quiet Take actually lands in the level of insanity that it establishes at is its baseline operating procedure. And I think it is actually such a logical continuation of the career of Jamie Babbitt, who also directed the Itty Bitty Titty Committee, which like couldn't be more of like an indie lesbian, like weird comedy. And I love these switching tones into like 
actually an era that like this feels like a movie that it feels like it's impossible that it could exist but then like you think of all the component parts that we've discussed here today and it feels like actually no this movie could only exist in the 2000s and so indeed entered the world at the exact time and place that it should have there's no other time that this movie would emerge so that brings us if that brings us to the end of our journey with the quiet that brings us to the beginning of our sign-offs so sam where can the people find you and what would you like them to know? Um, you can find me at Sam Weinman on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find my movie, The Quiet Room. I almost said The Quiet, uh, <laughs> the qui- the quiet Room. Yeah, since, uh, we're talking on, about the, since we're talking about The Quiet, let's, let's plug The Quiet listen, Room. Since, since we've got to keep the volume down, you can check out my <laughs> film, The Quiet Room, on Shutter and Crypt TV. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And December uh, just came out. And that is a feature film anthology featuring Milk and Cookies, which is my segment. Combining the two things that are the the twin strands that form the double helix of Sam's DNA, which is Christmas and horror. Um, And you can find me, Jordan Cruciola, on Twitter at Jorcru, J-O-R-C-R-U, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Cruciola. Uh, where I will continue to be living my life in uh, major chords and extolling the virtue of those things that you too easily wrote off years ago. Goodbye.